you would, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. There we're going to find, once again, Jesus is continuing the instruction that he's giving now on prayer. In fact, it's probably the most famous parable in all the Bible concerning the topic. This is the Pharisee and the tax collector. Some, some refer to him as the publican. And as we you know, departed last Sunday, we'd been discussing in verses 1 through 8 about, about how prayers run amiss. Uh, amiss, that's an old English term that, that means to, to ask improperly, even, even wickedly. For example, some have uh, interpreted the parable of the widow and the unjust judge, which we studied last week, uh, to suggest that we should just keep pestering God over and over again until He give us, gives us whatever we ask for. But instead we discovered that Jesus gave that parable to encourage His disciples not to lose heart when they're experiencing religious persecution. Being persecuted by religious adversaries. And the Christian response is, to religious oppression is to persevere in prayer, realizing ultimate justice will occur uh, when Christ comes, when He returns, for He's promised to those who, pray, who patiently endure, you know, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. And folks, as we saw last week from Revelation, uh, throughout the history of the church, the centuries of the church, there have been scores of faithful martyrs who have shed their blood and offered their lives, their lives being extinguished as they still wait for this promise to come, this promise of justice to be fulfilled. So Jesus said to his disciples, we saw this in verse 1 of chapter 18, uh, he told this parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. The writer to the Hebrews echoed the same sentiment in Hebrews 12, verse 3, providing Jesus as our example, as he said, for consider Christ, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. This is very real to a lot of generations of Christians. And sometimes we forget that 11 of those 12 apostles, uh, as history tells us anyhow, were martyred for their testimony, all except the Apostle John, refusing to abandon Christ, even when they are threatened by both imprisonment and the sword. Yet that seriousness of prayer modeled by Jesus in the in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's much lost in Western Christianity. And uh, the experience we have kind of, kind of in ways, sometimes cotton candy versions of Christianity. Instead, our prayers are often dominated by requests for ourselves. While Philippians 4 verse 6 suggests in everything, in prayer and in supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, Scripture does say that, it also sets limitations on prayers, especially when they repeatedly cross the threshold of asking God to again and again enhance our pleasures. When offered with such an attitude, uh, James 4 says, our prayers have run amiss. When we properly consider prayer, 
and how Christians are to pray, you know, we, we can think to ourselves, we so sparsely pray for the persecuted church around the globe. Uh, we pray so faintly for laborers to be sent into the harvest, so seldom for impoverished Christians around the globe, and so sparingly for those things that are in Scripture God's priority. Things like unity among the brethren, um, generosity in Christ's name, service to the brethren, and salvation efforts to draw others to Christ, etc., etc. So, with those being many priorities of God, especially those uh, in the church who are suffering for His name, it would seem logical, really, when you think about it, that to relentlessly pray over and over again for comforts, pleasures, and riches, that, that would become offensive to God. Praying amiss, it's offensive to God. It should, it should alert us to how we need to be uh, mindful of how we pray and what we prioritize when we pray. You know, contrary to uh, the common belief that you hear quite often that, you know, God is just, you know, pleased, as God in heaven is just pleased to hear whatever it is that comes off your lips. You know, just whatever is in your heart, whatever you're feeling, uh, just, just let, it, let, it, let it fly. He's just eager uh, to hear from you in one way or another. Uh, instead of that, we should be aware or, or maybe even beware. There are things we should not pray. There are things we should not pray. Prayers that go amiss. Prayers clearly in violation of God's revealed will. Prayers in vain repetition. Uh, That's Matthew 6. All condemned in Scripture. But there's perhaps no greater or more inappropriate way to pray than what we see in our passage today. A man presuming before God his own righteousness through works. Luke chapter 18. Let's read it together beginning in verse 9. And Jesus also told this parable to some who, some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, the age is old question. How is a man or a woman justified before God? That is answered in this passage today. Um, is it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone? Or is it by a person having faith in their own good works? Ages old question. You know, this is the notorious dilemma that uh, was caused, uh, had caused a German August, Augustinian monk, you know his name well, Martin Luther, 
caused him to light a fuse that, that set off the Reformation. That's when he nailed his 95 theses to, to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, in the year 1517. These 95 theses, they, they were points. They were points of contention against traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. And one of Luther's primary concerns was this question. How is a man justified? Justified means made righteous, declared righteous. How is a, a sinful man, which we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, this includes all of us, how is a sinful man made right with God? How is a sinful man justified before a holy and pure and perfect and righteous God? Uh, does God forgive us uh, because we have a thickly padded resume? Is salvation a reward for how much money we give, for the re- religious rituals that we participate in? Uh, you know, the, the common belief in Israel in the time of Christ is the same uh, as it largely remains today. Primarily, people believe salvation is based upon works and that through being a good person, you know that you can be saved. Go out on the streets. Ask the question. Um, well, if it's through good works that you know you can be saved, the question then comes, well, well how good then do I need to be? Exactly how good? And, and people on the street will answer, well, a little better than everybody else that we compare ourselves to. And, and we see this, this righteousness by comparison played out in this parable, which verse 9 says that Jesus told some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and then viewed others with contempt. So let's just see how, how the plot uh, turns out here. In 95% of people, well, actually just the majority. It's not a formal survey. Most people, by far most people, when you approach them and ask, are you a good person? Their response is, yes. Yes, I am a, a good person. When you reply to them, well, how do you know? They typically respond, well, I've never killed anyone. And they almost immediately compare themselves to others And usually they don't compare themselves to Jesus. Usually they list achievements while comparing themselves to the dregs of society. The the real sinners of society. And that's exactly what we see here in our passage. Uh, The story begins in verse 10. Two men, they went up to the temple to pray. That wouldn't have been unusual In this day, uh, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. were the hours of prayer at the temple. People would go up and pray at the temple twice a day. Uh, So both of these men, they visibly take part in the same religious ceremony, the same ritual. One of them was a Pharisee. As as we've previously learned about Pharisees, um, they they were astutely religious individuals. Astutely, proudly religious. Uh, They invented and they observed all kinds of traditions that they had become convinced were pleasing to God. 
things that they had invented. Um, they thought God was impressed with them. Some, some of these traditions that they had were loosely associated with commands of the Bible. Others were not. Others couldn't be found anywhere in Scripture. But they were traditions that they embraced. Uh, the title of Pharisee by itself, it, it's, it's very distinguished. It's prideful and distinguished. It meant one who is separated. Pharisee means separate. Uh, to come out of that culture. And, and to separate it's, it's an Old Testament command that is repeated again in the New Testament for Christians. 2 Corinthians six seventeen, come out from amongst them and be separate. The Bible, however, employs this as a command to abstain from sin. And when you abstain from sin, you kind of by default make yourself separate. You look at the culture around you, and when you no longer behave like you used to behave, automatically you appear separate from the culture. You stand apart. Uh, Once you quit sinning, or quit sinning as often, uh, you stand apart. But the Pharisees, they they concocted ways to separate themselves and, and stand apart far beyond this to distinguish themselves from everybody else, including their Jewish brethren. They adopted extreme traditions of religious piety. There were ceremonies and and cleansings and washings that are nowhere found in the Bible. Nowhere found in the Bible. Some of their traditions even directly contradicted the Bible. Rather than welcoming their Jewish brethren and drawing them in, they, they kept those who didn't embrace their traditions, they kept them at arm's length. You don't buy our traditions, you just keep some space, stand over there. Uh, Think to yourself, this may be a little painful, but think to yourself, you know, old denominationalism, Christianity. That which in America, we've seen, most of us have, have been sized up at one time or another entering through a church door. People will look you over. Some will say, you know, son... Why aren't you wearing a tie today? You know, is that a King James Bible that you're carrying right there? They look at it. NASB, New American Standard. Son, don't you know that Jesus spoke in King James English? And we've all run into things such as this. And and they'll say, you know, if you want to be a part of this church... You're going to have to be here every time the the door is open. All these traditions uh, that they observe. And and we've all encountered this type. Uh, It may, it may or may not, but it may reveal a pride uh, of people who want to be perceived as separate, higher, superior through traditions. You know, folks, it it all depends upon what's in the heart. I, I often wear a tie. I mean, not all the time you see me without a tie, but I often wear a tie. I don't look at everybody else and say, y'all better wear a tie. Um, The King James Bible, that's a good Bible. It was a very excellent translation for the circumstances that Erasmus was translating under. I use the New American Standard. Um, We know that there's no place in the Bible that it tells you that, you know, in the year 1611, that, you know, time is going to freeze. And uh, no longer is there going to be any adjustment to language and, 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 and words to change. One example would be, 
And, and I, I think the King James is superior in a lot of ways, especially when you get to the poetic places of the Bible. It's very excellent. But then there are other places. You go to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And you read the King James and it will say, uh, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And you go out to the culture around here and they'll say, Well, I don't know, are ye or aren't ye? Because the word order seems like it's phrased in a question. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And there's other things like that. It's like, like concupiscence. It's a word used in the King James that uh, means a, a, a severe lust, a, a lusting. It's a very sinful type of lust. Nobody knows that. So when a person goes up to preach out of the King James, what do they have to do? They have to interpret it for you, right? So they stand at the Bible, well, this word is concupiscence. And uh, this means it's a very lustful desire. What did they just do? They just translated the King James Version for you. Something that they declare nobody else is allowed to do. That's what you run into. It's a great version. Wearing a tie is fine. Going without a tie, just as good. Pharisees, they had traditions, and Jesus would not play along with it. They labeled him as kind of a rascal. They did a religious meddler who broke all of their rules. They didn't like him. To to them, Jesus was a rogue. He was a rogue. Be cautious, because today there are preachers who will uh, equate themselves to Jesus and, uh, and, and do it by, they say, breaking all the rules. Jesus broke all of the rules. And then they pretend to be cool by doing all kinds of relevant things to the culture, um, wearing skinny jeans and a tight sweater, whatever they do. Um, and since rogueness is so celebrated in our culture, to be, to be a rebel, some proclaim, we don't worry about the rules around here. Jesus broke all of the rules, they will say. That's not true. That's not true. In reality, it was the Pharisees who were breaking all of the rules. They were breaking the rules of Scripture by adding their legalistic tradition to it. Adding things that were nowhere found in the Bible. Well, Jesus was the one who was biblically orthodox and defended truth. He was, Jesus was the one that was standing for the Bible. He, he wasn't a rogue. He was a straight shooter. Jesus was never for changing all the rules or abandoning Scripture and all the rules. No one could find in Him any sin. No one could identify any point in which Jesus violated Scripture. He adhered strictly to the Bible, as do we. Uh, meanwhile, the Pharisees added requirements far beyond anything found in Scripture. Then they would hold everyone who didn't join them in contempt, especially those who were known to be sinners. And and in verse 11, Jesus exposes uh, their pride, their arrogance, when describing the Pharisees, or the Pharisee, who stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And the, and the Pharisee, uh, he is boasting in himself as being righteous before God. Um, about this, about boasting, 
Before God in your own righteousness, the reformer John Calvin writes this. Believers must not come into the presence of God, but with humility and abasement. No disease is more dangerous than arrogance. And yet all who have it, uh, and yet all have it so deeply fixed in the marrow of their bones that it can scarcely be removed or extirpated by any remedy. It is no doubt strange that men should be mad or crazy. Men should be mad as to venture to raise their crests against God and to plead their own merits before Him. The Pharisee, he commits this blunder of unfurling his resume in front of God uh, as, he, as he prays to himself. You know, that, uh, that statement that he prayed to himself, it could be understood in two different ways. Both are uh, acceptable in the Greek. One, one way could be that he, he prayed inaudibly. He prayed to himself. More likely, fits the context better too, more likely the prayer is directed at himself audibly with everyone else around to hear it, and self-congratulatory in its manner. Uh, if there's one thing that emits an odor, bad odor, you know, it's, it's private or public self-congratulations. Uh, look what I did. Look what I achieved. Uh, look at the award that I've received. You know, I, 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 I. And, and the Pharisee here invokes uh, that, that first person, that, that pronoun of himself, five times in a short statement. God, I thank you that, that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes all of all that I get. Boy, he's, he's a beauty. His own biggest fan. You know, you know how embarrassing it is uh, to see someone like this broadcasting their own personal uh, achievements. How do you think God views that? It's bad any time, but especially during prayer. You know, somebody t- needs to tell the Pharisee, it's time to take out the trash. If you didn't see the title as I, as, uh, in our bulletin, that's a, what I titled this. Uh, taking out the trash. Taking out the trash. The Apostle Paul, he was, before his Christian conversion, he was a Pharisee named Saul uh, who had to, carry, had to carry out a whole truckload of personal achievement and dump it in the trash by the curb. Uh, during our scripture reading in Philippians Chapter 3, the apostle supplied just a litany of credentials that he had, uh, that he was proud of back when he was still a Pharisee. In verse 4 he says, If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. When speaking of confidence in the flesh, uh, Paul means confidence in human achievement. For I was circumcised on the eighth day indicating that he was dedicated and celebrated by his family from the very beginning, even by his parents, as a pure Jew. He was a pure Jew. He was also of the nation of Israel. Those were the born and chosen people of God. He was not a proselyte or not a convert, is what he was saying. 
He's of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, that's basically saying being a Benjamite of the Benjamin tribe, it was like having a good family name. He had a good family name. A lot of people put confidence in that today. Of course I'm a Christian. You ever heard this? Witnessing to people? Of course I'm a Christian. My whole family is Christian. Run into all kinds of things such as this. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee. Um, Though born and raised in a Greek city, uh, that would be a city of Tarsus. Saul, before he became Paul, he knew Greek, but he had never abandoned the, the Hebrew customs, the customs of his people. He knew thoroughly the language and the customs of Judaism, which many Israelites had lost. Most of the Israelites at this time were speaking in Greek. That was the Roman language. Um, so Paul was a Hebrew and a Greek scholar, both. As a Pharisee, he was religious in the strictest sense, uh, just like the man in our parable. So strict and zealous was he for Judaism that he acknowledges that he persecuted the church. This is important. This is important. Saul oversaw the stoning of the first martyr for the church. His name was Stephen. You can read about that in Acts. Saul was a bad guy. Uh, The Pharisee Saul, however, was so convinced that his religious positions were right. He was so convinced he was right. He tried to eradicate Christ's church. That's how right he thought he was. Uh, So it doesn't matter how confident uh, that you are that your professed religion is correct. What matters is if it is correct, according to the Bible. Uh, A zeal for a faulty religion. Folks, that's utter folly. To have a zeal for a made-up religion. I have had... uh, Friends, as probably you have as well, who rise early each morning. They've done it for decades. They attend Mass at the Catholic Church, believing that it is efficacious or helpful in attaining salvation. The more often you go, the more credit you get, the more merit you earn. In their minds, they're genuine people. In their minds, they're fully convinced and fully committed of what they have been taught. Still, they're wrong. That religious practice is nowhere prescribed nor commended in the Bible. It's completely made up as a tradition. And, and it adds nothing to what Christ has done. Adds nothing. Uh, and when a tradition is practiced, each man knows his own heart. But when a tradition is practiced as a means of achieving righteousness, it becomes a damning tradition. It's completely different. We talk about traditions completely different than decorating a Christmas tree to celebrate a birth of Christ, a colorful celebration. Uh, We don't claim to absolve sins for the people who came in and, and decorated the Christmas tree. I don't think we'd, no, we don't. But Paul continues with his resume still as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. According to the law, 
Paul was a moral person. He made the appropriate sacrifices at the, at the given times, the proper times. He didn't steal. He didn't lie. He didn't cuss. He made moral judgments. He didn't drink, smoke, or chew, or date the girls who do. He was a good man. He was a moral man. But then he declares this. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. Here's what Paul did. He he took all of his achievements, he he loaded them up in a wheelbarrow, and did exactly what we do in Port St. Lucie. He rolled them down to the curb and dumped them out on the street, knowing that a garbage truck is going to come and pick them up. They need to be hauled away, Paul says, because they're waste. That is trash. More than that, Paul writes in verse 8, I count all things, all things, to be lost in the view of, of the surpassing value of the knowing of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ." and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It is by faith we are made righteous. Was Paul then made righteous before God through works of the flesh, keeping of the law, manufactured traditions that are made up? No. Was, he, was it faith alone in Christ alone? Absolutely. Martin Luther and the other reformers were right. We are justified sola fide and sola Christus. Faith alone in Christ alone. That's it. That's it. In fact, in order to gain the righteousness which is accessible through Christ, it was required that Paul count all of his human achievements as rubbish, as waste, literally as dung. You know, I've, I've listened to some preaching over the years that kind of get a, a giggle out of suggesting Paul here is implying a different four-letter word for describing dung. That, that's unlikely the case. It's unlikely the case. You know, Paul was not a profane man. He wasn't. Uh, the word rubbish... Um, Scubalon is how it's perceivably pronounced, if I'm getting it right. It referred to any type of material waste rejected as worthless or unwanted, especially solid animal waste. Cow patties. It, it wasn't slang or cussing, but a common word indicating that anything that must be hauled out to the dump and discarded, it, it was rubbish. It was garbage to him. All of his achievements that he had made go to the dump. And and if you want to receive forgiveness of sins and salvation, Scripture says that you've got to abandon everything that you've trusted in beyond Christ and the fact that He died for your sins and rose from the dead. The Pharisee trusted in the fact that he was not as bad as his neighbor. He trusted in the fact that he fasted twice a week, something never required in the law. You know, there's only one fast that was ever prescribed in the Old Testament, and that was on the Day of Atonement. 
the only one that was ever prescribed. Uh, fasting twice a week, entirely made up. Completely made up. Uh, God never asked people to do that. It doesn't make a person righteous. Again, think about making up things that I'm going to do um, certain in my mind that God's impressed by them. In addition, the Pharisee tithed. We, we spoke about quite a bit about this in the, in the past months. Under the Old Testament, tithing, uh, it was required to underwrite the theocratic form of government. The, the priests... Uh, that were acted also as judges, religious festivals, relief from the poor. And it was a mandatory theocratic form of taxation. You had to do it. It was the minimum in Israel. It was never deemed as an indicator of generosity. He gave the minimum. Wow. Wow. This is in essence what the Pharisees declared. I'm not as bad as the worst culprits that I know. I have often achieved many things that God never asked me to do, and I gave the minimum that the law would let me get by with. And he wants to base his salvation on that. I think there's a better way. Thankfully, there's a better way. We don't have to wait until next Sunday to discover it. Just look with me quick at verse 13. But the tax collector, notice the contrast here, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The tax collector also stands, by the way, it's a perfectly appropriate position or posture for praying, so is kneeling, so is walking, so is lying on your bed, so is putting your hands in your head and crying. Uh, it's not the posture of the body that God is concerned about. It's the posture of the heart. And the tax collector is humble in the heart because he's recognized that he's not righteous, that he's a sinner. It's not also not a blanket endorsement of all tax collectors. You know, some tax collectors, they, they were rotten to the core. Bad people, extorted money. Uh, you know, there are plenty of tax collectors, prostitutes, thugs, and gangbangers who never come to the point of remorse over their sin. There remains a, a myth that, that continues to be circulated suggesting this. It's, you know, it is because I'm not formerly religious or formally religious, that Jesus accepts me just how I am. Some people say that. It's because I'm not religious. The Bible says Jesus is a friend of sinners. He shows compassion, uh, showed it on the woman caught in adultery. I, too, am an adulterer, so, you know, Jesus and I are good. You'll hear that. You know, no life change needed. I'm just good. That's a completely wrong answer. Completely wrong answer. Paul writes to us in Romans 6 verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And in 1 Peter 4 verse 2, the apostle Peter declares, Live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the 
Time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they, Peter there is referring to your old running buddies, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. You've stood apart. You've come out from amongst them. And they notice. You know, Christianity is not a declaration that, that, that Jesus understands me and my bad ways and we're, we're all good. That, that's not Christianity. Instead, since the conversion of this tax collector, it's presented as a, a genuine conversion in the story. It's a legitimate conversion. We have to presume, like the tax collector Zacchaeus, that, that Jesus will have lunch with, by the way, Luke chapter 19, which will be to uh, before long, uh, that this man, too, is the real McCoy. We have to believe that since the Scriptures say that uh, in, in the parable he, he walks away justified, um, that we have to understand that he is a new creation. He who is in Christ is a new creation, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. There has to be a changed life. So we just have to presume, since Christ says he's justified, that, uh, that his past, his, uh, his attitude has changed. You know, it's an error to suggest to people that they can be reconciled to God through faith in Christ and keep all of their old ways. That's an error. You, you can't do that. That's not Repentance. That's not remorse over sin. That's not spiritual regeneration. It is the humble and repentant heart of this tax collector that assures us that God has revealed to him that he is a sinner in need of a Savior. And his response, his response to God's work in his heart, it's this. God, be merciful to me. The sinner. He recognizes he has nothing to offer God. Nothing in his resume, nothing in his background, nothing in his past achievements. He's dumped everything that he used to trust in by the curb. He's taken it to the trash. And in essence, this profession uh, of the tax collector, it, it describes the response of every person who has ever understood sin and put their faith in Christ. I'm dumping it by the trash. It's a heartfelt prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, don't, don't, let anyone, don't, don't let anyone suggest to you that nowhere in the Bible is there ever found a sinner's prayer. Here it is, right here. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I, I agree that there is no prescribed, specific prayer called the sinner's prayer prayer, meaning a specific prayer, that by mechanically reciting it, you can be guaranteed salvation? No, that's not in the Bible. But it is completely appropriate for a sinner who has come to an understanding of sin and faith in Christ to offer a prayer confessing guilt, pleading for mercy, and thanking God for salvation in Christ Jesus. I did it after I was saved. When I have encountered people who have received the gospel and 
um, true repentance has been evident, I have led them through a prayer as well, a sinner's type of prayer. And, and yeah, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of that. Uh, this shows a type of sinner's prayer that God surely accepts when it is offered through a humble heart. The beauty of the parable is that when Jesus is finished, there's no gray area left. He says, I tell you, the tax collector went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that term justified means that he was made righteous. Calvin writes, this passage shows plainly what is the strict meaning of the word justified. It means to stand before God as if we were righteous. What a beautiful thing. Through faith in Christ Jesus to be able to stand before God in a righteousness not of our own, but a righteousness available uh, through Christ by faith. In, In the Greek the word justified, it's known as a perfect passive participle. Perfect indicating that it's complete. Passive indicating we had nothing to do with it. It's completely passive. We are a passive subject. No contribution. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Scripture assures that good works are an evidence of salvation. They come after it. They never contribute to it. There's nothing you can do to add to Christ. It's Christ alone. Since there's been a, a passage primarily in, in just justification through faith alone, in Christ alone, I might as well just close here with a final quote from Martin Luther. You know, he trembled in fear. He trembled in fear of a system of penance and indulgences that, that he knew could never satisfy a holy and righteous God. He trembled in fear. But years after his conversion, Luther wrote this. That expression, righteousness of God, was like a thunderbolt in my heart. I hated Paul with all my heart when I read that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Only afterward, when I saw the words that follow, namely, that it's written that the righteous shall live by faith. And in addition, consulted Augustine. He read a lot of Augustine. He goes, I was cheered when I learned that the righteousness of God is his mercy and that he makes us righteous through it. A remedy was offered to me in my affliction. We used to go to a park out in Texas and witness. And... Uh, we had several diagnostic questions that we would share with people we would encounter. And I, I encountered a young woman there with a couple small children, nice, polite young lady. And uh, one of the diagnostic questions are, uh, is, are, are, do you think you're a good person? She said, yeah, I'm a good person. I said, well, how, how do you know you're a good person? And she said, well, I've never killed anybody. 
She assured me she wasn't a murderer. And then she began to list her human achievements as I asked her, you know, why would God let someone like you into heaven? Can you just give me some idea? And she started going through her achievements. Well, you know, I'm a good mother. I, uh, I've raised my kids well. I, I take care of my in-laws, and, and I attend church regularly, and, and I, 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 I. And I asked her, I said, where does Jesus fit into all this? She said, well, him too. And I said, him too or just him? She was, she was despondent. She, she couldn't adequately compose herself to respond. And uh, she, she needed to dismiss herself and her children uh, from the conversation. Uh, you know, I, I hope when she returned home that day, I hope that that woman remembered to take out the trash. Let's pray.